Hello, everyone, and welcome to Geek Rant, the only place on the internet where geeks rant. No, really, take my word, you don't need to search it out. We're the only one. Uh, this is episode number 261, When the Cat is Away, recorded November 27th, 2016, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. That's Element OP. Dot com, And I am not your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel. Mark has either had issues come up or is in a tryptophan-induced near-coma state. Uh, we'll let him come back and tell us what happened next week. But I am Seth the Gooey Kid Anderson. And joining me is the other awesome co-host, Miles, the Master of the Coin. Nah, I'm going to blow your last name. Wickers- it's Wakeham. Wakeham. There you I- go. Yes. Because, uh, well, the thing <laughs> is, I didn't put that down for everybody listening, some behind the scenes here. I didn't put that down in the show intro. And I... I was trying to scroll up and see it. So sorry about that. The the near live <laughs> podcast people for our, for our ones of listeners out there. So, Hey Miles, what have, uh, what's going on? Well, not much, man. Not much. Um, I, it's going to be fun. The two of us doing this with Mark MIA today. So, uh, not, no, we, I've been spending most of my afternoon doing the, the Griswold, uh, front lawn Christmas decoration thing. So, <laughs> Cool. So, and did, did sure. you find that one bulb that was keeping it off from working? <laughs> no, but you know what? I I I'm really scared to see what my power bill is going to look like in January. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, though that's the bad thing. Are they LED lights? At least they are. I, I, I we all the icicle lights we replaced out with LED because I was just blowing circuits. <laughs> right. <laughs> So yeah, it's it's really tacky and really bad, but you know, hey, it's Christmas. What do you do? Yeah, that's you know, isn't that what says Christmas more than tacky, um, you know, lights that just light up the whole yard and keep everyone from sleeping? Merry Christmas, that's everybody! True. <laughs> and what what have you been up to? Uh, not much. I actually I've been kind of a homeowner some this weekend. We had a um we had a small drip on our backyard hydrant, and that small drip became a larger drip and larger drip and it has been a stream for the last while and so yesterday i like bit the i kind of just said okay time to take care of it so i went to the home depot and got the parts and uh, uh cut off the end put on a new hydrant and so i'm gonna save us some money on our water bill finally awesome that's what we have to hear we frugality rules dude <laughs> yep you can either you know you can work for your money or you can make your money work for you and one of the ways to make it work for you is to not spend it on stuff, on stupid stuff. And having a leaking faucet that you neglected for a year, that's pretty stupid. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but hey, speaking of ways to make your money work for you, I have taken the plunge and I have bought a physical Bitcoin miner. Whoa. <laughs> so it is, uh, it's an older model. It's an S4 from uh, Bitmain. Um there was this guy local. He had one for sale for 200 and I didn't quite have any money, but you know, I sold some laptops and I was like, I sent him an email. Hey, do you still have it? Will you take 150? And he never got back to me. So I went on eBay and I saw somebody selling one for 250 and I said, Hey, will you take 150? And he came back and said, yes. And so I went, Oh crap. That means I have to buy it. <laughs> so I bought it and, um, According to the Bitcoin calculator out there, it should make me 20 to $30 a month. Uh, you know, so it'll pay off in less than a year and make me a little bit of income coming in on the side. What sort of power draw do those things use? Uh, this one looks like it's going to run about 10 amps. 
because it's it's the S4, so it's running um, about a little over a thousand watts, um, and um, no, a thousand volts on a hundred. Ah, I'm not looking at the <laughs> specs, but the anyway, what is it? It's volts over watts. Is that amps? Yeah. I okay. Think so. so it's a thousand volts at a hundred. I'm gonna have you're gonna make me look up the specs. Uh, it's fine. <laughs> but anyway, it looks like it's gonna run about ten amps, and so ten amps. That's right. We whenever we built our house, we put all the all the bedrooms upstairs on their on circuits. So I'll just go into one of the bedrooms that's not being used and set it up, and you know, hopefully not burn the house down. Well, you also have that community power thing, right? Where it's like a a grouped uh, power. How, how does that work? Oh, the in your neighborhood. Uh, oh, we are on a co-op. So, co-op. Um, yes, uh, basically that means that we are all owners of the electric company, and so there's not an electric company selling us, um, you know. And like once a year or whatever, we receive dividends, which is you know just a ten, twenty, thirty dollars something like that. Um, but uh, so it, what? What it really means is that our electricity is really cheap. The last time I looked a month or so ago, we were running about seven cents a kilowatt hour. Oh, okay. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I yeah. really wish. <laughs> so, and uh, I talked to my dad and I was like, dad, do we have enough juice coming into the house to set up a new 50 amp circuit? And he was like, uh, yeah. And then, so now it got me thinking because there's a, um, there's a company out of Israel that has a 16 theta hash one that I'm thinking about buying. But, you know, it's like $1,200, so. Well, as, as I probably mentioned in the past, I'm going to try this summer to get to Iceland uh, with the whole reason for doing it is to try and secure some co-location space to stick some equipment because of their a massive amount of uh, unlimited cheap energy. Right. So we'll just see if that ever works out. <laughs> cool. how, much, how much is energy in Iceland? I, you know what? I don't know because I'm still waiting for them to get back to me on quotes, but uh, it does not appear to be very expensive at all. I think you'll just pay like a flat monthly fee uh, to, you know, have space in some facility. Um, it's funny though, I, they, they sent me photographs of the facilities. And whereas, you know, here in the, you know, in the US or uh, I'm sure in other parts of the world, they're highly secured facilities with guys with arm, you know, rifles and whatever guarding them and all that sort of stuff. In Iceland, it's a shed. It's a tin shed on an island. And I said to the guy, how on earth can you, you know, put all this equipment out there? And he goes, dude, it's Iceland. No one comes to Iceland. So I thought, okay. (laughs) When in Rome. Yeah, that's true. So... Man, that's so, you know, unfortunately, all the cyber criminals listen to our podcast and now they're all going to head to Iceland to pilfer servers. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Ah, cool. So, hey, um, how was your Thanksgiving? Yeah, it was good. Uh, it was good. We we did a fairly, um, I, I mean, low key Thanksgiving. It wasn't a, a sort of over the top, uh, but it was just nice to have a break. Right. Um, you know, even just even a day is enough enough for me to have a break. But I, I get fidgety, so I ended up doing stuff on the Friday, and then that you know, morphed into Saturday and Sunday, and it's been nonstop. So I need a break from my break now. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, how about you? I was okay. My niece did her first Thanksgiving dinner, so we went over there, and 
I ate far too much, and uh, so it turned out to be pretty good. <laughs> you can never have far too much on Thanksgiving, right? Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I can tell, like, I'm getting older because there's more leftovers, you know, um, and I'll, it only took two plates to fill me up, but yeah, but she did a good job, so... All, I didn't even get to the dessert stuff, which I usually don't eat a lot of dessert on Thanksgiving. Right. Well, that's cool. That's very cool. What is this I hear that you, uh, you're having an issue with Lenovo? Oh, man. I, I did not know this, but um, a friend of mine has a Lenovo laptop, and it seems as if the um, his uh, little Wi-Fi card in it has went bad. So, you know, I had these extra laptops around, and I was like, oh, hey. Let me plug this let me plug this Wi-Fi card into your Lenovo and we'll make sure that's the problem so you'll know what to buy. Well, come to find out Lenovo has in their BIOS or UFI or whatever their BIOS is called now, they whitelist products. So if you it has to be a Lenovo approved part to go in there or you get this error message saying un uh, unauthorized part, please turn off your computer and remove it. And I was like there is no reason for that other than they want to gouge us with the uh, markups. So Lenovo is off my list of laptops I will buy in the future. And I'm sure other companies do it, but Lenovo, this is the first one that has, and I've probably bought some in the past, but this is the first one that has reared its head on me. So Lenovo is dead to me now. <laughs> you know, it's routine for me to change those little Wi-Fi card things out of laptops because I tend to find with Linux that if it's not an Intel card, I get issues. I mean, the Broadcom stuff, you've always got driver problems right. and so on. So it, it's become just normal. I go to eBay and I buy these little Intel Wi-Fi, you know, adapter thingies or whatever they call them. And they're the worst thing to try to fit. You have to be – it's so it's, – it's like microsurgery to fit those things in. Just about. But, yeah, are you telling me that if, it, if I had a Lenovo laptop, I'm – I couldn't do that. You would have to get a Lenovo part that was on their whitelist. And you can like, you can go and download, um, you know, from their website, a list of parts that are whitelisted. But yeah, if you just went to eBay and bought one and stuck it in there, if it didn't have the little product ID number added onto it by Lenovo, it would not work. Oh, your machine okay. wouldn't boot. And there was like two ways to hack it. Uh, an old one is like putting tape over one of the pins, but those pins are so small now it's almost impossible. The other way is to hack the BIOS and it, it's not hacking. The BIOS isn't something you just like, I got five minutes to do. Let me do that. I would not do that on a laptop I was trying to get value out of because it's one of those things, if you mess it up, you've kind of bricked the laptop. Yeah. Okay. I did not know that. That's really interesting. Yeah. But apparently there's other companies that do it as well, but Len Lenovo does it and it's a carryover from IBM. IBM was really bad about it. And so it's just something they never changed when they sold their business to Lenovo. And since Samsung is getting out of the PC market and selling their business to Lenovo, that's that that's a bummer now. 
Everybody's leaving the PC business, huh? Yep. Wow. So another little play. And, you know, Samsung, they only had a couple of percents of the market, so it's not a big deal. And Lenovo was already the market leader. It doesn't matter much in the U.S., but in other countries where Samsung is big, um, you know, like South Korea, for instance, um, mm-hmm. it, it would uh, it, it's, a, it's a bigger win for Lenovo outside the U.S. than it is in the U.S. Wow. Wow. It's crazy. It's changing world. Yep. So, Miles, I understand you have a correction. <laughs> yeah, um, I it's it's kind of a weird week because uh, in the news this week, I learned, I think it was only a couple of days ago, that um, Florence Henderson from the Brady Bunch passed away. Right. Which is uh, kind of weird because she was almost like America's mom. You know, she was right. she filled that role. Um, and I had said on a previous episode or two that um, – the I think that uh, that we were living in a house in a place in in uh, Los Angeles called Westlake Village that were neighbors to her and I, you know I it we we left there in two thousand and two I think to move to Arizona and um, my wife uh, I just mentioned to her in passing that I you know uh, we'd mentioned about that and she goes oh no 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 it wasn't Florence Henderson. I'm like, well, who was it? She goes, oh, it was Marine McCormack, you know, Marsha. <laughs> Marsha, like, really? Marsha. Exactly. You know how many jokes I could have had on that one if that was my neighbor? <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't realize because, I mean, you know, the weird thing about it is no one ever came out of their house. You didn't even know your neighbors uh, right. over there. It wasn't a very community-driven area. But, uh, yeah, that was it. So, no, unfortunately, I was not Florence Henderson's neighbor. And uh, may she rest in peace because she did so much for uh, for television and, and maybe just social culture over the years. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I love, of course, The Brady Bunch was a little before my time. But when I was younger, it was one of the shows that you could always find on syndication on, you know, we had a couple of independent stations in Dallas. And so it was always on. You know, up like up through maybe high school, you could find it on at least once a week somewhere. So I was well familiar with the Brady's. Ah, oh well, well there you go. Yeah, ah, we're all getting older. We are. Yep. Well, I guess uh, kind of Mark has any and all listener feedback glued to his person and hasn't released any of that to us so hopefully we'll have some i'm still curious as to um you know hear what people thought about our uh political rants or anything we've talked about over the last couple of weeks so guys let us know you know we want to hear how smart or stupid you think we are you know right or wrong give us some stuff to bounce off of um but i guess we will move into the news and i came across this story that um apparently apple has fallen to the number three um, smartphone sold in China. And it's um, number one is, I guess, Android. This article didn't say, but I think that would be a safe bet that it's Android. But number two is the, how would you say that? Yun? Y-U-N? O-S? Um, which is de- I don't know. Which is developed by Alibaba, um, which is a Chinese kind of, software conglomerate type company and they have roughly 14 percent of smartphone shipments in mainland china by the end of the year so like i say that pulls them ahead of apple and if they're getting 14 percent in china 
that's probably enough to move them to third place overall in the world because really it's it's uh android has been number one apple has been number two and nothing else is out of single digits so that's interesting i mean i i give props to the chinese for that because i think that i personally this is a personal opinion of mine i i don't think it's very prudent to buy Apple at their price points and for what you get for them. Right. Uh, I think functionally they don't compete these days with the, the later model Android phones. Uh, having said that, I'm not going to make too many friends with iPhones, I'm sure. But it, it, it's interesting, though, that the statistics that you get, you know, like market share and so on. Mm-hmm. I, I did a um, – I had to go to San Antonio, Texas earlier this year to present some mobile software which we had written uh, to a uh, – sort of a focus group and it would have had i'd say about 20 people in this room it was a very large conference room it was at a convention of one of my clients they'd gotten all these people together for this meeting so um i uh, was presenting it and i was looking for some software that would allow me to present onto a projector from my phone and uh, that I, f- I found some some options but i have an android phone so uh, of course i did everything with Android. And one of the first questions when I put it up there on the screen was I didn't want to sort of, you know, annoy the iPhone people by not showing them an iPhone version of the software because we write in software that allows me to cross port between both platforms. So it doesn't really bother me which one it was. Right. But I just, I just needed to present it. Um, I put it up on there as Android and then I did a, a sort of a survey of the room. Now these are, Tertiary educators, uh, so we're talking like deans, professors, chancellors, that sort of level, they're obviously getting, they're probably on six-figure salaries, and, you know, they're, they're not short of a few dollars. Right. So when I said, okay, hands up, who has an iPhone, 75% of the room put their hand up. So if that tells you that the statistics regarding iPhone penetration versus Android if they're saying, well, Android has a far greater market share, that's probably true. But I think you have to look at economic demographics because in those higher economics, the iPhone's all over the place. Oh, definitely. iPhone has positioned themselves, you know, for the uh, snobby and smugness factor. That's really the only reason you get an iPhone. It's their overpriced, pretty shiny baubles. And, um, you know, I mean, but having said that, because I have never found an app to match iTunes U, I'm seriously considering getting, um, or if I come across some iPhone or iPad, I'm, I would keep one because for me, that is a killer app that Android has not matched yet. And so if somebody out there knows of a way of an Android front end app that I can get off of a store without having to root and go to a secondary market and compile my thing and do all of that crap. I just want to be able to go to Google play and type in I iTunes or I can't even remember the golly. My brain is just gone here. iTunes university clone for Android or something like that and download it. That's what I want to do. So come on, Google app, Android developers, give me that tomorrow. Um, but yeah, no, you are totally right. In the rich people, the 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 snubby sm, uh, smuggy type people, yeah, they're all over Apple, and uh, it, it's 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 the poor working man, working woman out there who uses an Android to get stuff done. 
or the Chinese who are smart enough to realize they're not going to get suckered into this. We have to have the, you know, the glitzy, expensive uh, item. You know, we, we just want something that works. Yeah. And, you know, I, got, I get in props for that. Yeah. And apparently this uh, Yoon OS, and again, I'm probably butchering the name. I, I can barely speak American English good, much less, you know, a foreign language. So um, it's designed for maybe a lower end type thing. And they're seeing, they're wanting it maybe to be their Internet of Things. And plus it's being subsidized by Alibaba. They're like paying people to put it on. Um, so, you know, which it's an early thing. They want market share. I understand that. And it's designed to be on the lower end of the smartphone market. So, you know, it's not so much, it, this is probably a good thing for Apple actually, because it probably cut into Android's usage far more than theirs. So it makes them right. seem more relevant. Maybe. Right. right. Wow. Yeah. Any other thoughts about that? No, I, I, you know, I, I think we're becoming, I mean, what well, the iPhone was released, what, in 2007. So we're coming on 10 years of that phone now. Yep. And like all technologies, um, we are starting to enter the, the, the waxing period, I guess you would call it for that. Yeah. Uh, in, in that everything becomes commoditized and it's all about price and optimizing what we've already got and there's not really going to be any kind of quantum advancements in that sort of technology now. So maybe the focus will move off phones and mobile devices and onto something else. Um, who knows? But um, at this point, I think, I think that uh, ultimately Android is going to win out when it comes down to just functionality, price point, what you get for your dollar. I think, I think so. it's going to end up winning out. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, since, since, I mean, I love to bash Apple just because that's my stick and I enjoy it, but I have to give them props here. Um, a guy went fishing in March of 2015. He was on a frozen lake doing some ice fishing and he, um, he caught a fish or he hooked a fish. So he set his phone down on his lap to reel it in, which that tells you the guy was not so smart. You shouldn't have done that. But anyway, it fell off of his lap and it hit the it hit, they had a little shanty over an ice hole. Um, you know, they were doing ice fishing and it hit the ground or the frozen ice in such a way that it kind of hit on its side and tumbled and rolled and fell into the water. Now he apparently had on some type of Otterbox like case. Um, and it, they drained the lake like um, sometime this past year because of structural defects, I guess, in the dam or whatever. And somebody went out there with a metal detector and he actually found it. He took it home, took it out of the case, cleaned it up, put it in rice for a few days, powered it on, went through the contacts, found the guy and gave and sent it back to him. So it sat at the bottom of the lake for months. It was under like a foot of mud and it, it was an iPhone four. So it powered on. So, you know, he had That's moved. Great. Yeah. He had moved on to, uh, an iPhone six S in the meantime, but, you know, dude, okay. He, I, you know, I know if you put my Android phone, of course, my cheapy little hundred dollar piece of junk Android phone under a foot of mud for a year, I don't think it would work. But, you know, maybe if I put it in the outer box, it might. But anyway, I just, I thought that was, 
I just thought this was wow. So I had to uh, kind of give Apple some props for doing that. If you, um, when this comes out, if you click on the links in the story notes, you can see there's a picture. You can see the case that it was in. And then he was able to get it powered up. And it has, you know, some little uh, rust and discoloration around it. But it powers on. And so I thought it was pretty cool. Very cool. Yeah. Wow. Way to go, Apple. Um, yeah. I, 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 I love to bash them, but you got to give them props when props are due. You know, uh, well, they, otherwise you would just be like Fox News or MSNBC. <laughs> well, their engineering over the years has always been stellar. I yes. mean, in terms of their build quality, how they, you know, if you ever open up a, a an old Macintosh and you see the way that they packed everything together and how it was done very carefully with the, you know, the repair technician in mind and yet not wasting space, not wasting parts. Uh, it's been in the DNA of Apple right back from the days of Steve Wozniak when he was always trying to get things done with fewer chips. I mean, that was always his thing. Um, they are excellent at hardware engineering. Absolutely. Yeah, and even like comparing it, like, you know, when Microsoft came out with their Surface, and uh, of course, you know, I'm sure they've improved a lot, but this guy did a comparison between the original Surface teardown and a iPad teardown. And he talked about how, you know, elegant the iPad was designed internally, you know, stuff that the average user is never going to see, and how the Surface was just, can we get the craft to fit? And so, you know, you know, obviously it works and the functionality to the end user is very similar, but the underneath engineering, um, at least historically, and you know, there, there is some wonder and question how long that will remain post Steve jobs, because apparently Steve jobs was the very heartbeat of Apple. If you listen to some pundits, but anyway, you know, yeah, props off to Apple for their high quality engineering. If, if you can last a year in the bottom of Lake. You got to give it up for them. That is true. That is true. Yeah. So you had a story, and this is one we kind of teased last show, where Coinbase was under scrutiny from the IRS. Yeah. Um, this is an interesting one because, uh, yeah, this is a philosophical issue. It's a legal issue. It's a technical and, and financial technology issue all wrapped into right. one um so you know the original premise of bitcoin the old satoshi paper of bitcoin was really designing a a, a method of transferring value between people that was decentralized so you could you know mining was done all over the place and so there was never a single point where you could shut it down there was never a uh, a sort of a center of the spider to kill it. You, it was a big network. Um, and then we found as, as time went on that a lot of exchanges opened up and they opened up all over the world. Um, but those exchanges came under a lot of uh, scrutiny by various different regulatory agencies in different countries. And that meant that at some point, in order to legitimize Bitcoin, those exchanges had to sign up for uh, appropriate regulation by uh, FinCEN and all the financial uh, organizations. The big ones in the United States, we used to have hundreds of exchanges, but they all kind of died off bit by bit. Um, 
there were and, and it's this is not uncommon in business where you start off with something new and and eventually over time you end up with three or four main players and that's it uh well so such is the case with bitcoin exchanges the largest one in the united states being coinbase um coinbase did a lot of very good things in the early years to try to combat uh, regulation so that people in all states in the US could register for a Coinbase account in reasonable simplicity. They didn't have to jump through too many technical hoops to get a, you know, a Coinbase exchange account and with that a Coinbase wallet. So Coinbase made Bitcoin accessible to the common person um, and then they grew to being, you know, the, the I don't know, what is it, the uh, IBM of... <laughs> I don't know if that's the right term anymore of exchanges, but, you know, the number one player. Um, Well, as it would happen, um, as Bitcoin has gotten more and more uh, entrenched and, you know, now we have, uh, what, $10 billion market cap or more of Bitcoin out there, um, Coinbase is now starting to feel the pressure of regulatory agencies that do not necessarily understand or embrace the concept of Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies. And the biggest one of those, of course, is the IRS. So uh, a couple of weeks back uh, in the news, we learned that the IRS has subpoenaed Coinbase or is in the process of subpoenaing, subpoenaing Coinbase to obtain a list of all of their customers dating back to 2013 with every transaction they've ever made. Now, you know, if if the IRS wanted to know that, they'd work out that the blockchain's a public ledger and they could just look in the blockchain. But of course, they want Coinbase to fill in the gaps about who owns what keys to what transactions so they can see whether these people are um, skirting uh, IRS regulation for tax evasion. Um it's a very interesting situation because what's happened is Coinbase responded back to the IRS flatly saying no. I mean, you'd, would you stand up to the IRS? Well, they did. They said, look, our our clients entrust us with anonymity and we meet all these regulatory requirements and, you know, you can probably get all the regulatory stuff from FinCEN or whatever. But if you want us to come to the party and just give you keys to the kingdom for anything, ain't going to happen. Yeah. And the thing the thing that really makes me glad that they stood up to the IRS, because the IRS didn't come and say, hey, we think Seth Anderson failed to report $10 billion he made in Bitcoins. We want his transactions. They said- it's quite possible that in the course of business, people might have used Coinbase and possibly not recorded their income. So we want you to tell us everybody who's used it and what they've used it for so we can determine if any laws were broken. So, I mean, I mean, and that's oversimplification, guys, you know, s- stop your emails right now. But that that's what happened. That's that's the basis of their suit. And I think that it's off basis because the IRS is a guilty until we take your money and let you try to prove your innocence and we give you some of it back mentality, which is, you know, flies in the face of the historical point of view of law in this country. So I am glad that Coinbase is standing up to them. You know, I'll just tell you my views on Coinbase is I consider it like I put money into Coinbase. So that's how much 
my value is and I've taken money out. Once the amount of money I put in or once the amount of money I take out becomes more than I've put in, at that point I have taxable income. It doesn't matter if you know I had two bitcoins and through appreciation and you know Ponzi schemes or or whatever else my get rich quick scheme you know if they become 10 bitcoins if I never transferred them from bitcoins to cash it's the equivalent of stock going from $10 a share to $100 a share and I own it it's not taxable until I sh- until I sell it off and so hopefully you know, I mean that. You know, we'll see how all well that that happens if I get audited, but um, but that that's my view on paying taxes on Bitcoin. No, I think you're right. I mean, the IRS clearly stated that this Bitcoin was going to be considered an asset, and it, as an asset, you know, you would think that you're only going to create a taxable event when you sell it, um, and that would be, you know. But but here's the thing. This is where technology and disruption has a big issue when it comes to um, you know financial regulation bitcoin is not currency in the way that a us dollar or a, a yen or a deutschmark is is currency it's a bunch of public little keys it's little cryptographic keys that you use to you know for your ssh certificate or you know it's it's just a cryptographic signature it has no actual tangible value in the same way that a dollar bill had no tangible value when coins of gold or silver were there as well. It was a kind of a lighter way of carrying a representation of something else. It itself did not have value unless you needed it to burn to keep warm. It really didn't have any value. Right. But the IRS changed their laws and changed their regulations to start taking cash as currency uh, and therefore to make it a taxable commodity. And what this, what the, the unintended consequence of all of this is going to be that those in the IRS who are naive to technology and what Bitcoin can do and its original promise will try to do everything in their power to convert Bitcoin as a decentralized method of distributing value into something that they can tax. And in doing so, they could um, destroy Bitcoin and force all of the Bitcoin activity outside of the United States and out into the rest of the world, thereby crippling our uh, Bitcoin technology and our whole industry here. And that's scary. Um, but they have a history of doing this. You know, this is what they do. They'll change that law. They'll make it so Bitcoin is no longer an asset. It's now a currency. It has to be treated that as such. It has to be, you know, there are restrictions on how you trade it and how you report it. And, and oh, my gosh. You yeah. Know? <laughs> when does it stop? The thing, that, the thing that's scary is, you know, it's the same reason, and this will tie in with another news story you brought, it's the same reason banks want to destroy Bitcoin's uh, or any other digital or cryptocurrency because their hand isn't in the pie and rather than embrace it and you know they're taking the it's evil so we think it's not good you know like i listen to people in the financial world when they talk about bitcoin you would think they were handling 
anthrax or something. They're, they're just afraid of it. They're terrified of it. They're like saying you shouldn't be involved with it. You know, what happens if somebody corners it and, and all this other kind of just, they're just throwing junk out there. And, you know, and since the IRS in much the same way, you know, the people who work at the IRS or people who used to work at banks and are wanting to go work at a bank, uh, whenever they retire from government service or vice versa. And so, you know, I, I can see it. Whereas the official government policy might be hands off on Bitcoin. The people pulling the purse strings policy is, Hey, that's crimping into my gold press, my gold press commode that I sit on every morning. Uh, when I get to the office for two hours before I start work at 1155 before lunch. And I just, it's it's a scary thing how much power that they can wield even you know because th- this isn't the IRS isn't you know it's not a government agency it's a private organization that quasi reports to the US treasury so it it's not you know there's not you know you can't vote out the IRS uh they're not appointed by congress you know there's very little congressional oversight they kind of there's some fiction they throw because people would be terrified if they knew how powerful the IRS could be if they tried to be um so this is just a way are they trying to kill the bitcoin market they you know, I think maybe Bitcoin is too big for them to kill, but they could certainly damage it in America. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, uh, one of the things that happened this week was that we hit the threshold of 16 million Bitcoins being mined. They'd mined block 440,000 apparently this week. Um, and that's an important step in terms of valuation of Bitcoins because obviously there's only 21 million of them out right. there. Uh, we're we're now at 16. When I got into Bitcoin, we were at 12. Uh, so it's moved up quite a bit. Now, it will slow down because, you know, our, we're halving the output of the miners and, you know, all of that will slow it down. But it's showing that Bitcoin is is not able to be stopped anymore. And I guess what's really concerning here is that when you look under the covers of all of this, you realize that um, you know, a bunch of kind of geeks with financial and mathematics and economic background and who came together and, and found this wonderful way of creating uh, a decentralized currency for the world to use. We knew back in the early days that this was going to be a huge political issue because it flies uh, at completely at opposite spectrums with a centralized controlled government and banking system and cartel which our world has been built on our you know it's it's what controls our our uh, economics controls wars it controls yep. famine it controls everything and this has been done by as you rightly put it a bunch of guys on gilded you know toilet seats and and that's that's part of the reason we see so much of this um brexit like uh, reaction in politics is because people can can't get ahead. People can't find value in their lives anymore because they're being stomped out by the banks. And although I'm ranting on a political, <laughs> no, no, text, this is economics. Know. This isn't politics. Uh, it, it's it is true though, isn't it? I mean, uh, the old what was the old saying used to be? How do you stop a terrorist? Give them a job. 
Um, that's probably true here because it's the reason why we have these, you know, terrorist organizations rising up in all parts of the world is because there's no economy out there for these people to feed their families. So they pick up arms and blame that guy as being the bad guy. And, uh, and you know, next thing you know, we're all getting roadside bombs. So uh, having said that, Bitcoin was a way of destroying that entire uh, built up architecture it's a true disruptive technology and everybody who, you know, governments and banks and everything that would stand in its way would be destroyed by Bitcoin. And you know that the IRS and everybody else is going to do everything in their power once they work out the danger of this thing to do what they can to shut it down, slow it down, stop people using it, regulate it, do whatever they can. But you know what? Unfortunately, like all disruptive technologies, they might be able to succeed with one. But if they do that, just another cryptocurrency will just pop up in its place. Yeah, I think so. I hope so anyway. But, you know, well, here's the thing. It doesn't necessarily take away the entry. But, I mean, think about this. I, my degree is in counseling. And my background for the past over 10 years has been in tech support. But I have just become you know, a quote unquote player in digital currency by buying a Bitcoin miner. Um, and now the, the thing, you know, okay, I have a place to store and I have electricity to power it and I have a network connection. So now I'm, I'm, I've become a, you know, Titan of finance, you know, granted a very <laughs> tiny Titan in a very big pool, but you know, so yeah, it makes it available to the masses and it, what everybody wants for, but I have a friend, he's, he's one of my closest friends and he is, he works for a bank, uh, a, just a regional bank. You know, he's not like president of the world bank or anything like that, but he thinks that you should stay away from bitcoins because one of the VPs at whatever chase or bank one or whatever bank was like, yeah, Bitcoin technology, you know, the blockchain, there's something about that, but that Bitcoin is just a passing fad and you should stay away from it. So, and you know, that's a little oversimplification of what he told me, but the financial advisors are f afraid of Bitcoin because, you know, they make their money by holding my money and charging me for letting them have the privilege of holding my money that oversimplifies how a bank makes money. But if all of a sudden, if they're not holding my money, if it's held on compute now, you know, of course the downside of Bitcoin is it's possible that someone could hack my Bitcoin password and drain my wallet and I could lose everything. You know, somebody could go rob a bank. Well, Hey, my money's insured by the FDIC, uh, in the, digital world, my money is insured by the strength of my password. So it's not password one, two, three. It's a little harder than that. But, you know, so you, th there's a risk involved in this. But um, so I just don't want to, oh, I'm going to ditch my life savings and convert it to Bitcoin. Hold on and think about it for a minute. So, but yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, let, let me throw in an idea, though. Um, in the same way that we are responsible for our own lives and our own safety and, and all those sorts of things. Um, and yes, there are support mechanisms like, you know, police departments and, and so on that we could call upon should we feel threatened. The reality is that um, you also have responsibility to yourself 
to protect yourself from from being in that position, whether it be to avoid that position or to know how to react if you find yourself in that position. And it's no difference in the case of Bitcoin. Bitcoin, you're absolutely right. If you put something on the internet and it's on some public network, somebody can change your packets, yep. period, right? So you don't want Bitcoin on a public network like the internet. You know, I'm a big proponent of uh, cold storage or hardware offline wallets where you take your keys and you store them on what is basically a USB key and you take it off the computer and you stick it in a safe somewhere and you have ways of getting to that data or you print out your keys on paper and you put it in the safe um, in the same way that we would do that if we had gold bullion. Um, now, you can pay somebody to have a safe that's called a bank, right? <laughs> and then you fall back into the same problem again. They're going to charge you to get access to your safety deposit box. So, uh, no. At the end of the day, to me, um, Bitcoin hardware wallets, off offline cold storage is just safe, good practice. And you know what? It's not on the internet. It's not accessible to being hacked, and no one's going to change your packets with that. Yeah, that's true. But you know, but so you're a gateway to the internet or to the world, like for Coinbase. So my gateway into the Bitcoin world is Coinbase. I can I can take my fiat government issued currency and convert it to the binary ones and zeros of the future. Well, they've become a bank because there is now, um, you know, they keep a spread. We buy, you know, let's say we buy at 700 and we sell at 710. So that, that spread, VIX in the, is the financial word for it. That's part of the way they make their money and everybody does that. You know, hey, I bought a laptop for 100. I sold it for 300. That spread is how I make my living. But they've also went and now they've added fees to your purchase and your selling. So, you know, if you buy something and turn around and sell, you lost the spread and 3% of the purchase price. So Bitcoin or Coinbase has become a bank. They're just, they're a, they're a Bitcoin bank and not a US bank. So that is, that is a very, very good point because what people uh, find out very early on with Bitcoin is that we, we have to change our habits in terms of how we think about buying and selling or acquiring and spending our assets. Yep. And and that's a big part of – it's very hard to do that with every vendor out there that you want to do business with not understanding Bitcoin. And if there was anything I could do, uh, if I could wave a magic wand, it would be to make every vendor out there understand Bitcoin and accept Bitcoin, and then all of a sudden we would have no issue with this because we wouldn't need to be moving money in and out of exchanges all the time. We'd disempower the exchange so that it would become simply an on-ramp and that would be it. But we're not there yet. Um, you know, you mentioned before about the bank's and your friend at the banks having issues with Bitcoin, not necessarily understanding them or realizing it was a threat. Um, I think it is It is true that it is a threat. In fact, this week, um, the uh, I, I'm not sure if we mentioned this before, but there was a group of banks out there that formed a consortium last year uh, called R3. And there were, I think, 42 banks, members of this group, 
And it was um, joined by uh, very large players like uh, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, uh, Barclays, big banking organizations all jumped on board of this because there was this whole thing going on last year where Bitcoin was evil, but the blockchain was really good. I mean, that was the whole marketing push that these guys had out there in regards to Bitcoin. And what they realized was banks who do not trust each other, you know, basically, um, they wanted to be able to get rid of the middleman, the, uh, you know, SWIFT and all of these inter-counterparties, you know, where they were using these third parties as escrow agents to handle transfers of large sums between the banks. They wanted to get rid of those (laughs) because it's like no honor among thieves here. The counterparties were charging the banks too much money to act as middlemen in the transaction. They wanted to get rid of it. Well, the in the same way that we consumers want to get rid of the banks when we buy a computer from Dell or a, a you know a pizza from from the Pizza Hut or whoever it is, um, we want to get rid of the banks in that transaction. We just want you know a simple way of doing it. So too the banks want to do the same with their counterparties with their bank other banks. So they form this consortium, and the whole idea was, hey, the blockchain, which is basically Bitcoin. Um, it's a really, really, really cool way of guaranteeing transactions between two parties. We should use that. We don't have to pay anybody to use that. Meanwhile, on the other side, they're saying, but Bitcoin's evil. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you knew this was really weird, right? Well, this week, um, some amazing things happened with the R3 consortium. Some of the big players all started to leave. Now, the one thing about the R3 consortium is that two of the members of that consortium group are very interesting. One is IBM. So IBM saw this as a way that they could sell services and maybe hardware to underpin the bank's ability to do blockchain. So they realized the banks, they're kind of dinosaurs. They don't understand this stuff. They're going to pay us a lot of money to come in there and build their inter-transfer systems, and we want that you know, money. We want that part of the action. So IBM stepped up and became members of this consortium. But another group, very surprisingly, was the Linux Foundation. <laughs> so the Linux Foundation joined the R3 consortium as the free software evangelist to go in there and make them look nice, right? right? Make them look like they weren't bad people, a bunch of evil banksters out there. No, because the Linux guys are in there. They'll keep them right well. What happened this week was that um, a number of products that the R3 consortium or members of had produced all were done under the GPL and or at least under, uh, you know, like a, a, a Berkeley license or a Mozilla license, a public right. license, meaning that it's open source. And all of a sudden they released some code and they had to put it out on GitHub. And the banks immediately said, wait a minute. Hang on, you can't do that. You know, what about us? You know, we own this. This is proprietary. And then immediately they came to realize, no, it ain't. You don't own anything. You're part of this free software, this Linux thing. And the hipsters, you know, the the hippies out there are telling you how you banks have to behave. Well, banks don't like that. And consequently, a whole bunch of them just exited stage right. And... Uh, you know, I kind of expected something like this to happen, but 
the interesting thing is, and, and this is kind of a funny, um, I don't know if, I don't know how to react to this, but there was a guy a year ago by the name of Mike Hearn. Mike was one of the original core Bitcoin. Well, he was one of the original Bitcoin guys. He wasn't necessarily one of the core developers per se. He did contribute a lot of code, but that became lessened over time. In the end, he got into a lot of arguments with the Bitcoin community over a whole bunch of philosophical issues. And he did what we would call in the Bitcoin community a rage quit. <laughs> and <laughs> he was threw his arms up in the air and said, you know, I'm taking my toys. And he, he left. And he and in his in his parting, he said, Bitcoin's bad, it'll never work, and it's gonna, you know, it's all this bad stuff. And we saw a price drop of probably close to about maybe five to seven percent of Bitcoin's value just dropped. Um, because there was all this bad press. Well, the banks seized on Mike Hearn's rage quitting and used it as as propaganda to try to sell against bitcoin like look one of the bitcoin guys says it's bad so it's got to be bad get out of bitcoin well what they didn't tell you was that mike hearn immediately left the bitcoin community and went to work for the r3 consortium mm. and was being paid by the very banks that were paying for him to put out this propaganda right. well now he's left so he's he's out of i don't know if he's necessarily left the Bitcoin, uh, the uh, R3 consortium, but the whole thing's looking like a lot of egg on his face. And the unfortunate part about it was that we suffered uh, a financial loss as a result of this bad press that was really just a whole lot of fiction from people with, you know, they had, they had motives that were not necessarily pure. And in this particular case, I, I have no sympathy at all for this guy for doing what he did. Um, but I don't think we've heard the end of right. it. But but I do believe that the R3 consortium is probably going to whittle down to something so small and in the process they'll do everything they can to back away from this, quote, blockchain thing. And then the next thing you know, we might actually focus back on Bitcoin like it was back in 2014. Huh. That could be cool. Well, we, we can only hope. We can only hope. Yeah. So, you know, if you're using, if, if you're one of those speculators trying to get rich off of Bitcoin, that price drop can hurt you. But if you're in it for the long haul and wrote it out, it's not a big deal, you know? So I don't know. You know, I, I don't know how I think of Bitcoin because obviously if I'm going to invest in mining technology, I want people to buy and sell and there to be transactions um, because otherwise how will I make money? Um, but if I, I want it to go up over time as well. So that way the money I earn, the Bitcoin I earn now will be worth more later. So I want it to be an appreciating currency. Yeah. Well, I think look, math will, will always be on your right. side with that. When you've got a reducing number of available assets, the value of any individual asset must go up. And I think that in this particular case, Bitcoin, uh, there's no way you can't argue math. It's got to be that way. Well, I mean, you, you're not arguing math, but you're arguing Bitcoin versus some other currency that either exists now or will exist in the future. 
So, you know, it's quite possible that the digital currencies can take over. And it's also quite possible that Bitcoin could not be among the victors. It's got, it was the first major one and it's got a head start. It's the one with the largest market cap, but that's no guarantee. You know, if it was RCA would still be a major TV player and all the watches ever made would still, would still come from Switzerland. So. Right. Right. So true. So true. But. If we get on to the uh, – here's, here's an interesting thing. is If we take Bitcoin and we go back to the point we were talking about before about not moving Bitcoin out of uh, the Bitcoin space and trying to transfer it using exchanges either from fiat currency to Bitcoin or from Bitcoin back to fiat currency so you can spend it, um, there are a lot of options popping up, uh, particularly with the holidays coming up. There's a lot of options that will allow you to spend that Bitcoin – and buy, you know, physical product. Right. Um, and I thought maybe what we could do is just list off a few of these so that people start realizing that Bitcoin's not just this theoretical thing. It's real currency that you can really use uh, and that companies will take. Um, All right. So launch into it, Mar- or Miles. Give us a primer on how to use Bitcoin and actually stretch your holiday budget. Go. Okay. All right. So, I okay, there, there's a lot of smaller companies out there or smaller players that will accept Bitcoin right off the bat. And the biggest one's probably Overstock.com. Mm-hmm. It's one of the larger ones. Dell will accept Bitcoin if you want to buy a computer. Uh, Newegg.com will accept Bitcoin if you want to buy computers or technology devices and so on. So, they're, they're very good players. Um a way that I have used Bitcoin before to buy things is to use gift cards. Uh, there's a web application called gift, G-Y-F-T, dot com. There's, a, there's probably a few of these. But they will allow you to buy gift cards from 1,100 different vendors with your Bitcoin. And then with the gift app on your phone, you can just go to the vendor and then pay at the checkout using their gift card and, and you get it. And there's no real fee associated with that per se there was even a time i'm not sure if it's still the case but there was a time where they would actually give you three percent of your purchase as a sort of like a cashback for doing it using the gift app uh but i'm not exactly sure if, if you bought with bitcoin they're, what they're basically doing is passing on the savings that they would make if you if they were accepting you uh, as a merchant they were accepting your payment with visa or mastercard or amex they'd lose that money to the merchant processors but if you do it with bitcoin it doesn't cost them anything so therefore you know they would pass that on i'm not sure if that's still the case but it used to be so that's one way but the the elephant in the room when it comes to spending money is amazon right i mean it's the big guy and what people, uh, what a lot of companies have been trying to do over time is to find a way that you can buy Amazon uh, gift cards using Bitcoin. And there is a company that's just popped up this week that I found called iPayU.io. So it's a letter I P A Y Y O U dot I O. And what you can do is you can use Bitcoin to buy Amazon gift cards that are then pushed into your Amazon account. So, um, you know, if you've got like a gift balance, when you go to check out at Amazon, it suggests, do you want to use the value of your balance to pay for your purchases? Well, this way they'll, they'll put the balances in there. Um, it looked good on the surface, but I actually tried it. 
because I was curious as to whether or not this was going to work. And in fact, um, it's not quite as good as I would like. Uh, there's a much better way of doing this, which I'll explain in a minute. But on the surface, here's how it works. I took $75 of uh, Bitcoin currency, US dollar equivalent of Bitcoin, and I transferred it into the iPayU.io wallet. It's kind of like an online wallet they have. And what I got for my $75 was $74.89 balance in my uh, wallet, in my iPayU wallet. So then I went to transfer that into my Amazon account. So I wanted to use all of that money and buy Amazon gift certificate or gift card credit into Amazon. Well, by the time I did that, the arbitrage on that transaction reduced it down to $73.67, which is what ended up in my Amazon account that I could spend from. So in doing the math, it cost about 1.8% end-to-end to do that transaction, um, which is kind of, you know, I mean, 1.8%, I guess it's not a huge amount, but if you're doing this regularly, you know, it can, you know, no one wants to lose money, right. right? All right. Well, there's a much better way that you, that everyone can do this. And, and let me give you the summary of this. This is going to be the, this is the headliner for you. Okay. How would you like to buy anything on Amazon for 25% off its retail price? That would be awesome. Okay. So here's how you do it. There is an app on the web called purse.io, P-U-R-S-E.io. Now, it's a very interesting idea. Uh, what they do is they realize that there's a lot of people out there, particularly in the third world, that generate Amazon gift card credit by doing things or setting up links on websites where Amazon pay you back in, in credit and Amazon gift credit. Or there's a thing Amazon have called uh, the Mechanical Turk. I've actually yeah. made a little money off of that. Not much, but I've done some stuff and I've got an account. Right. And so what you do is you do very simple little things and you make kind of penny transactions and so on. It might be you answer a capture for somebody who wants to, I don't know, cross post 10,000 comments on a blog and they have to fill a capture out. So they hire this army of people in, in the third world to fill in the gaps and, and they do this thing and they get paid in Amazon gift card credit. Well, if you're living in, um, I don't know, Borneo, Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, Cambodia, wherever it might be, you're probably not spending your Amazon gift, con- gift card credit on Amazon. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's a way you can generate this, this Amazon currency, but you probably, you need to pay your rent, you need to feed your family. It's not going to happen from Amazon. So what do you do? Well... What Purse do is they have this kind of a, I don't know, it's like a bazaar, a marketplace, where people who have generated balances of Amazon gift card credit can sell it at a discount off the, do- off the top to people who want to buy products in the Western world on Amazon. So let's say, for example, you want to buy a pair of shoes, and let's say they're $50 on Amazon. So what you do is you register with Purse, and you, <laughs> excuse me, you load into purse $50 worth of Bitcoin, uh, maybe 55 because there's purse take a small fee for this, but it's not much. 
But uh, actually, you probably don't even need to do that. But anyway, you, you put $50 into purse. And then you go on your Amazon and you find the product you want. And what you do is you take a, uh, there's a link that you can, you can issue this as a, um, a gift request to people, a public gift request. You can say, I want those shoes. I'm going to put it in my, you know, gift request. It's kind of like, uh, like a wedding, mm-hmm. you know, when you, when the Brian, and the groom say, well, we want all this stuff and here's a public list of it. Well, Amazon give you that. So you put a link of this thing in your gift request and you make it publicly accessible and they give you a URL back that you can give to people that will give you that gift. And so what you do with Purse is you log into your Purse account and you publish that URL and it goes out onto this marketplace for anybody in the world and you say, anybody who wants to buy me that pair of shoes with your unused Amazon gift credit, I will pay you 75% of that price in Bitcoin. And you put that out as kind of a bid, right? right? You wait few hours, sometimes minutes, depending on, you know, people need to spend their Amazon gift card credit. Uh, but you, you put it out there for a while. Sometimes it, what I've found is if you exceed $100, it can take a few days because the amounts are larger. And then the third world amounts large like that are a bit dubious, but smaller amounts are good. You put it out there and then eventually somebody comes along, they see your offer and they go, I'll take that offer. So they click on it and you'll get this ding, this email or message or whatever that says somebody, uh, so-and-so has accepted your offer. So what Purse do is they act as an escrow. That person then says, okay, I'll buy that for you. They buy that for you as a gift using their Amazon gift credit. Amazon ship it to you and it arrives to you as a nice gift from so-and-so and then you notify Purse that you receive the item and Purse immediately take the Bitcoin out of your wallet and give the percentage to the person who bought it for you. The whole process takes maybe a day right. or so. It's not not a big deal. And what you end up doing is you take somebody with all of this valuable unused gift credit of Amazon, which they can't use in their local region, and you buy it from them at 75 cents on the dollar, and Purse will add a fee in there. It's not a huge amount, but it might be you know 5% or something like that. They, they're going to make a little bit of money on that transaction. But then you just got yourself a pair of shoes for 45 bucks. You're happy. They arrived in the mail as if you had bought it from Amazon. And somebody in the third world just managed to feed their family. And that's how purse works. Now, this is not, you know, something that's simple, right? right? Try and explain this to the average person and they look and they go, mm, that sounds a bit dubious, whatever. Right. I have, I, I can tell you, I've bought over $1,000 worth of Amazon purchases, not one big one, but many, many, many $50 purchases using this technique all the time it works every single time. Now, sometimes you get somebody who's panicky or freaky or whatever that you, you know, took more than an hour from receiving the parcel to say, click, I got it. So they got paid and they have this, you know, feedback mechanism, kind of like eBay, where they rank you on the transaction to try to keep everybody honest. Um, But I have found that whenever I've encountered that situation, I can contact Purse through their customer uh, service directly and they've always resolved the issue 
and I've never had a problem hmm. with it. Um, it's purse.io, P-U-R-S-E dot I-O. Uh, I'm not affiliated with them in any way, but I tell you what, I've saved an enormous amount of money on Amazon by buying this way with Bitcoin. So there you go. You don't need to lose money on a Bitcoin transaction. You can make money on a Bitcoin transaction. And you're helping kind of, you're helping people from, because I mean, let's face it, you know, if you're in America, you're all, you're one, you're part of the 1% already. You know, I mean, it's better to be poor in America than poor in the Sahara desert um, because there's just so much more social net for you here. But so you're helping people from a third world economy. You're helping them because it's money they wouldn't have had, you know, so it's a win-win. You, you're saving money. Amazon's capturing market share, and that makes their investors look good. And then so their stock goes up, so Amazon's happy. And, you know, the guy in the tent with the pedal power for his charger for his smartphone, he's happy too because he's able to make money as well. So it's a win-win-win. It's uh, the world in Absolutely. Action. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, we can see that using these sort of techniques like uh, purse to create like a crowdsourcing mm -hmm. effect, uh, particularly with Bitcoin empowering the whole thing. Um, it has positive benefit to everybody. And um, I wanted to add another uh, part of this as well, being Thanksgiving and all, um, or just recently for us here. Um, it's one thing for us to be buying things for ourselves and or, or for, you know, gifts for the holidays or whatever. But there's also something about um, the value of community when it comes to Thanksgiving, in particular, something which is a, a, a sort of a, an area which is important to me, and that is food waste. Right. Um, we have an amazing problem uh, in in the one percent world, the the US, um, that we throw away more food than we probably consume these days, um, and it's a big problem when you've got a homeless issue in your in your local city, um, people who are hungry and they don't have food, and it just seems so stupid to me that we don't redistribute unused food. But, you know, there are, I don't know, a whole bunch of regulations about doing it or it's just not profitable for restaurants to do this sort of thing. Well, again, to the rescue, uh, Bitcoin, and uh, this has less of a role, but part of it, it is important. There is a group out there called unsung.org, U-N-S-U-N-G.org. Uh, it's a kind of a charity thing. But it's an, uh, a, a crowdsourced mechanism to solve the problem of uh, hunger and redistribute uh, unused food. And the way they do it, very novel. They uh, have this situation where restaurants uh, can sign up uh, to basically, at the end of their shift or the end of their day with all of the unused food that they didn't sell for the day, uh, they simply go to a website and post that they've got food ready for collection. Unsung give them uh, containers that are ready to go for the food so they can just put the food in the, the containers and be done with it. And then um, an army of volunteers out there with mobile phones get a sort of a ding if you're near that zip code and you've put yourself up for, for doing this, that restaurant, I don't know, Olive Garden or whoever it is, has a bunch of food ready to distribute to St. Vincent de Paul or whoever the, the homeless shelter is, would you go and pick it up and take it over to the, the thing? And so the, all of a sudden, 
everybody jumps in their car and goes and picks the food up and distributes it to the homeless. Well, why do you do this? Because you can get tipped in Bitcoin. <laughs> so, <laughs> so therefore, if you want to generate Bitcoin and you want to do something for the homeless, there you go, right there. You solve a problem of food waste, you make some Bitcoin, and you help somebody who has nothing to yeah, eat. Well, now, what could be wrong with well, that? And I bet you that it's set up that the restaurants who donate it, they're getting a tax write-off rather than just food waste. So, you know, it, it's are. a win-win, and you know that gets publicized that Joe's Crab Shack um, donated food to the homeless, so the altruistic yuppies of the world unite and say, oh, isn't Joe's Crab Shack great? I was going to go vegan, but since they helped the homeless with their leftovers, I'm going to go eat there. So everybody wins, you know? Um, yeah. I, I like situations where everybody wins. So uh, any time it's a win-win situation good thing absolutely absolutely and you've got to feel good about doing this i mean who wouldn't want to help somebody out who needs some food in the belly you know that's it's only a good thing we might reach out to somebody from there and see if they wanted to come on and do a show um you know because we haven't had a guest in a long time and this is kind of a this is kind of a thing that i don't know it's kind of you know feel good story for the holiday season so you know there's enough ugliness in the american uh culture today that it'd be nice for something like this to get a little publicity as well yeah i, I think we should make that happen that's a great cool. idea well miles we have been going for an hour and 15 minutes and i was hoping to do a short show <laughs> So I'm I'm going to uh, kind of hijack the show, and I'm going to tell everybody what happened this week in history. This is a cool one that affects really pretty much everybody who listens to this show, um, because even if you don't listen in MP3 format, you do other things in MP3 format, unless you know you're one of the diehard Linux and you got Og going out there. But um, November the 26th, 1996, the MP3 format was patented in the United States. So the United States patent number 5,579,430 is granted to the Fraunhofer Institute in Germany for a digital encoding process. The technology used in MPEG Audio Layer 3 more commonly known as MP3. MP3 technology paved the way for the digital music industry by creating a high-quality format that was compressible so that many songs could fit on the relatively small data storage devices of the time. Fraunhofer had started work on the comp on compressing music as far back in 77, began work on the what would become MP3 in 87, and was awarded a patent in Germany in 89, and it took it like seven years to leap the pond. Um, and so so this week in history, November 26, 1996, the MP3 patent was granted in the USA. And so, you know, for the iPods that came out and everything, the digital streaming and all of that, you know, you can thank the MP3 format. You can thank the Germans for another high quality engineering win. Yay, Germany. Absolutely. You know, they... they <laughs> I, I've I've never actually had to pay for using the MP3 libraries. I know that I guess some people do, probably large corporations, but they probably don't issue or police licensing for using it for small, you know, consumer level applications. Right. But I've got to give them um, so much credit here because not only was it remarkable that you could take a, an audio file that used to be like eighty megabytes in raw 
AIFF format or something like that and compress it down to like three uh, and not really lose a great deal of audio quality. I mean, there was some loss, but it wasn't that bad. Um, but at the end of the day, they also created the underpinnings of the decentralized distribution network uh, that began as Napster and eventually morphed its way into BitTorrent, which then became the underpinning for Bitcoin and, and, and any other thing else that's decentralized. So it did. these guys were pivotal in creating something that would enable us to be a truly decentralized world uh, and to really leverage the computers we've got in our desks. Wow. I, I wasn't aware of that fact. So um, way to go, Miles, bringing value add to the This Week in History segment. Um, <laughs> well, this kind of brings us to the point of the show where we will tell you how you can contact us. You can go to elementop.com, and there's a live link you can click on there. The um, chat was not functional today because Mark is the, when he hosts, he has it set up to broadcast the audio. Uh, Miles and I were going to do that. Then we realized, wait a minute, we would be hearing ourselves twice and that would not work out. So there was no, there was no chat room tonight. Some people were there. That was the sad part. We had to say, sorry guys, um, we can't do it tonight, but come back next week. So, uh, elementop.com, you can find us there. You can go to patreon.com slash elementop. And, um, if you want to leave us a little bit there to help us bring this to you did you like the discussion on bitcoin are you like guys if you talk about bitcoin one more time i'm gonna bite your head off uh you know we we have a twitter page honestly we don't use it we have a facebook page we don't use it uh you can call 559 i am opie i a m o p i e uh you can send us an email geek rant at element go to the top of the page element op click on contact us um for all of your holiday shopping amazon.com slash element op or you can go to element op and click on the amazon tab uh it doesn't change your experience it just if you buy from amazon and not a third party on amazon it puts a little coin in our pocket and it helps uh, defray the uh equipment cost and the hosting costs and all of that that we do to bring the show uh it's a labor of love when we can get a little bit we appreciate it but thank you all for listening and hopefully we will all be back next week to bring you another exciting geek rant uh so miles parting words um the only thing i would add to that long list of great ways to contact us would be um i would suggest look if you guys are on itunes give us a five-star review go on it won't cost you anything but it really helps us out it ranks us higher in the podcast listings and we could do with all that help we could get. So please, iTunes, a five-star review. We'd love you. Yeah, what I always tell people is when you buy your Windows machine, before you wipe it and put Linux, go ahead and install iTunes and rate us and then wipe it and put Linux. When we were when we were <laughs> the Everyday Linux podcast, we would say that all the time because, you know, the, iTunes, man, it's such a hog, but... It's like I say, iTunes University is a killer app. Um, so anyway, uh, that's all for this week. Uh, we hope to hear you or we hope you'll hear us when we come back again. Uh, that ends this edition of Geek Rant. Geek Rant.